Hey, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> My name is uh, Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the preaching pastors here at South Rogers Park, and it's great to have you with us this morning. Just want to say welcome. And I also want to say happy daylight savings time. Great job. Uh, iPhone, making sure we all got up on time today. Well done. And uh, happy birthday to Phil Adams. I don't know where Phil is, but yeah. Phil, 30 years old today. He's getting old. 30's old for us, right? Um, but hey, last week, uh, Phil kicked off this new series that we're in where we're walking through the I Am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And if you got a Bible today, we're going to be in John chapters 7 through 9. John chapters 7 through 9. I know that's a lot, but we're going to read some of it. And we're going to start in chapter 8, verse 12. So you can turn there. John chapter 8, verse 12. All right. Anybody ever been in a cave? Y'all ever been in a cave? Okay, like a real cave, like under the ground cave? Yeah. Um, well, a few years ago now, uh, Kinsey and I happened to be driving through the state of Kentucky. Why? I really have no idea. But there we were, and uh, there really isn't all that much going on in Kentucky. Let, let's be honest. If you're from Kentucky, I'm sorry, but that's just the reality. And uh, we're passing through Kentucky, and we see this sign for Mammoth Cave National Park. Uh, and Mammoth Cave National Park, from what we'd heard, is maybe the coolest thing in the state of Kentucky. So we decided to take a little detour and go check this thing out. So pull off, and uh, I'd never been to a cave before, so I didn't really know what to expect. I had no real expectations. But it's actually pretty amazing. So at Mammoth Cave National Park, there are like 400 miles of underground passageways that are all layered on top of one another like spaghetti noodles. And to see some of it, you go with a guide, and what the guide does is, is she leads you down into the mouth of this cave. And you're walking down into this cave, and it is pitch black. Now, thankfully, they've got uh, lights that light your way, illuminate the path as you walk down into the mouth of this cave into the darkness. And so you walk down there, and the first place you stop is this giant underground room that's the size of a basketball arena. It's, it's as big as this auditorium. You're in there, and you're in this giant underground room. And when you get there, and you're looking around at this giant underground room of stone, the guide starts telling you stories about the cave. And the stories are really fascinating, but, but then the guide does something really crazy, just straight nuts. The guide turns out all the lights. You're like, what the bump? Like, it's dark in here. It's really dark. Like, it's so dark, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. You can't see the person next to you. You, you can't see the, the cliff that's around the bend if you walk forward. You can't see the way out of the cave. It is pitch black. There is no light at all. And if you stayed that way, if you stayed in this space with zero light, you would be in a whole heap of trouble. You see, without light, life as we know it would cease to exist. The, while there are a, a few small bacterial organisms that live on the bottom of the ocean and get energy from hydrothermal vents that are linked to the Earth's crust, the rest of everything else in the whole world, everything else that lives on Earth, is part of a food chain that gets its energy from the sun. And so therefore, all of it requires light to survive. Light is essential to life. And as you're in that cave in Kentucky, in the pitch black, you can't help but become conscious of how terrifying the complete absence of light really is. Light is essential to life. And without it, you're in trouble. Now thankfully, as you're standing there in the pitch black, the guide uh, reaches into her pocket. Now you can't see this because there's no light, but the guide reaches into her pocket 
And she pulls something out. And then with the flick of a finger, a flame comes out. A little lighter. And that little flame, that small flame, is enough light that if you needed to, you could find your way home. That light transforms the room. That light changes everything. And if you're in the dark, to get out, all you need to do would be to follow the light. Now today, as we continue this I Am series, we're going to be looking at an astounding claim that Jesus makes that would have been really appropriate deep in that cave in Kentucky. So with that in mind, read with me as I read John chapter 8 and then 8 verse 12 and then John chapter 9. John chapter 8 verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and sent me go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. 
One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Would you pray with me? Father, as we read this story today, as we uh, talk about this text, I pray that you would open our eyes to see. That you would give sight to the blind. Would you illuminate this for us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that there's a way out of the cave. And we're going to look at what it means to follow the light. So picture this scene. You're standing in downtown late in the evening. All around you, people are joyously celebrating. Music fills the air. People are playing instruments. They're singing. They're dancing. The mood is festive and light. There's delicious food everywhere, too. The streets are flooded with tourists from out of town. Thousands upon thousands from all over the place have flocked to the city for this festival. And then lining the streets and in every public place there are makeshift huts where people can sleep if they want to. And in the center of it all, brilliant, blazing light. What's going on? Lollapalooza? The Taste of Chicago? The Cubs Victory Parade a few years ago back when they were good? No. The setting is Jerusalem. The year is around 30 AD. And the party going on is the Feast of Booths. And what I just read and everything going on in John chapter 7 through 9 happens at the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was the most popular of three annual Jewish feasts. Every year, tens of thousands of people would flood Jerusalem for a week in early October. And it was called the Feast of Booths because it commemorated the 40 years where God's people had wandered in the desert and lived in these makeshift huts after the Exodus. And it was a feast because it celebrated the way that God had provided for his people all throughout those 40 years in the desert. And beyond that, the way that God had provided for his people every year thereafter, whenever the harvest would come in. 
And so it was like Thanksgiving on steroids, a huge week-long celebration. And the faithful would flock to Jerusalem from all over the place. And they'd build these huts out of branches and leaves. And, and they'd put them up along the side of the road or up on people's rooftops. Now these booths weren't exactly the Drake Hotel, but that didn't really matter. The people weren't there to sleep. They were there to party. And to really party, one of the things you need is light. Light is essential to life and to parties. Now there was no electricity in those days. So if you wanted to celebrate at night, what you needed was fire. Lots of fire. And so in the courts of the temple, they'd set up these four enormous candlesticks. Each of them 75 feet tall, the height of a mid-level apartment building. And each of those candlesticks would be filled with gallons and gallons of oil that would continually burn throughout the night so the people could keep on partying. The temple where all this happened, it sat at the highest point on the highest peak in all of Israel. And so some report that the light from Jerusalem, the light from the temple during the feast could be seen from as far away as 20 to 40 miles in every direction. So it'd be like you're up in Waukegan or you're over in Gary, Indiana, and you're looking along the lakefront and you see the light radiating from the Chicago skyline. In those days, during the feast, Jerusalem was literally lit. And as this party's going on, people from all over the city are talking about one person in particular. All the buzz is about this one guy. Everyone has an opinion about him. You may have heard of him before. His name is Jesus. And, and some say that he's, he's a good man or, or a prophet or even the Christ, the Savior of the whole world. But, but others say that he's a fraud or, or something worse. Like he might, be, he might even be possessed by a demon. Everyone has an opinion. And those opinions are deeply divided. And on the last day of the feast, as night falls... As the people stand beneath these towering candlesticks ablaze with light, debating who Jesus is, Jesus himself shows up on the scene. He steps into the temple courts and he looks at the crowd and he says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, you see all this light? This is nothing. If you want light, you're looking at it. I am the light of the world. Follow me. It's an astounding claim. It's an astounding claim, especially in its own context. See, this metaphor of light, it has deep Old Testament roots. The whole Feast of Booze was about remembering the way that God had provided for his people during those wilderness years. And during that time, do you remember how God guided his people through the dark of night? It was by his presence in a giant pillar of glowing, blazing fire. That's why Israel sang songs like Psalm 27 verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. The light in the temple during the Feast of Booze was a reminder of the God who is light and who gives light to his people. And here comes Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. So this astounding claim is actually a claim by Jesus to be God in the flesh, to be God himself. And even beyond that, 
you'll notice that Jesus doesn't say here that whoever follows him will see the light of life. He says that whoever follows him will have the light of life. Light is essential to life. Light produces life. Without light, you will die. And Jesus says, without the, life he, without the light he offers, you cannot really live. You cannot experience life as it was meant to be right now, and you will not experience life as it is meant to be forever. His light is essential to life, to true life, to real life, to eternal life. And following him, according to Jesus, is the only way to get it. Now, everyone had an opinion about Jesus before he said that. But with that statement, the floodgates open wide. The religious leaders hear his astounding claim, and they basically say, who is this guy? Where does he get off claiming something like that? And his statement sparks this debate that takes up the rest of chapter 8 about Jesus' authority to make this kind of astounding claim. And the reason that Jesus' statement was so controversial then is the same reason that his statement is so controversial today. In Jesus' day, the leaders all thought that they had plenty of light without him. And in our day, we think that we have plenty of light without him too. Jesus might be a light, but there's no way he's the light of the world. You know, we've got street lights and city lights, and we've even got glowing rectangles that we stare into all day long, like this one right here. Who needs the light of the world when I've got light in my pocket? In our day, it's even really common to hear people talk about the light that's inside of all of us. There's a popular idea that everyone has light, and what we need to do is we need to kind of cultivate it and let it shine. So one example of this, uh, there's a woman named Deborah King. She's a popular author who calls herself an energy healer. Uh, she's not a believer in Jesus from, uh, from, from what it very much looks like. And uh, she's someone who promotes this idea that there's light inside of all of us. And so he, here's what she says. Check this out. She writes, Can you think of someone who is always positive? This doesn't necessarily mean that they're always happy. Sometimes life throws pretty hefty curveballs. But do you know someone who responds to those curveballs with grace and perspective, who reacts from a place of love and light? It's these types of people. Like Gandhi or Maya Angelou or Mother Teresa who face hate and fear with love and forgiveness. Who are true beacons of light that inspire the world. She goes on. You have light inside of you too. Depending on where you are in your spiritual development, that light might be a flickering flame or a giant bonfire. But it's there. And it's ready for you to nourish it and let it get brighter and stronger. You see, the, the light is inside of all of us. It might just be a flickering flame, but the light is there and you need to cultivate it. You're not in the dark. You've got your own inner light that you, need, you just need to let shine. And between all of us, there's plenty of light to go around. So when it comes to Jesus, he might be a light, but, but he can't be the light of the world. Now, at the end of chapter 8, this debate about Jesus and his authority, it turns deadly serious. Jesus makes another astounding claim. He, in chapter 8, verse 58, he very explicitly claims to be God, which was a capital offense in that day. And so the Jews, standing around him hearing this, they pick up stones to throw at him, to kill him. But Jesus avoids this assassination attempt somehow, and he hides himself, and he walks out of the temple area. And so what you have at the end of chapter 8 is you have the light of the world leaving the people in the dark. But as chapter 8 ends, the question hangs in the air. What authority does Jesus have to make these kinds of astounding claims? 
And as chapter 9 begins, Jesus is going to provide an answer to that question in the form of some convincing evidence. So look at chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus leaves the temple after avoiding assassination, he passes a man who was born blind. The guy's literally been in the dark his entire life. So in verse 5, Jesus reiterates his claim to be the light of the world. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he does something really weird. He spits on the ground, makes a little mud pie with it, and he takes it, he puts it on the man's eyes. The blind man never saw it coming. Sorry. I had to. Now, now straight up, this thing is weird. Commentators speculate here about why Jesus does what he does. Uh, some say that it could be him reversing taboos about do- bodily fluids. Like, uh, Jesus' spit is so pure that it turns dirt into healing balm. S- some idea like that. But, but the bottom line is we really don't know why Jesus does this the way that he does. And in the, in the context of the story, it doesn't really matter. Because what matters is what happens as a result. Jesus sends the guy to go wash in the pool of Siloam, down a hill in another part of the city. And so this blind guy with mud on his face goes and he navigates his way through the city. And then he gets to this pool and he takes the water and he splashes his face and he washes the spit and the dirt off. And when he does, he can't believe his eyes. Because for the first time in his life, his eyes work. He can see. His sight has been restored. The light of the world came and he turned on the lights for a man who had always been in the dark. The rest of chapter 9 makes it really clear that this healing was undeniable. The guy was blind, but now he sees. His neighbors and his parents verify it. He himself verifies it. And even the religious leaders who aren't real happy about it ultimately verify it. Jesus gives sight to the blind, and the blind man becomes convincing evidence that backs up Jesus' astounding claims. In the context of John's gospel, this healing is an object lesson. It's an illustration of Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. It backs up his authority to make the kinds of astounding claims he's been making. Like, if Jesus can give sight to the blind, then maybe we should pay attention to what he's saying about himself. Maybe he really is the, the light of the world. And at this moment... At the end of verse 7, Jesus steps out of the scene until verse 35. And what ensues over the next 28 verses is more and more increasingly intense debate about him. Things start off mildly in verse 8. People in the neighborhood see the guy who used to be blind walking around like he can see, and so they start asking him questions. What happened? How'd you get your sight back? They're dumbfounded by this. They don't have categories for it. They don't know what to make of it. And so the man gives them a snapshot of what happened. But honestly, he doesn't even fully understand it. Later on in verse 32, he even says that never, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born born blind. Like this was not normal. I think sometimes people look at reports of miracles like this in the Bible. And we think that people back in the day were just all super gullible and naive and they believe anything. But you read this story and it's really clear that everyone is dumbfounded. They're stupefied by this healing. They've never seen anything like this. This was not normal. It doesn't happen. And so they bring him to the religious leaders to see what they think. They want some expert expert opinion on this situation. And, And this is when things start to get really wild. Starting in verse 14, you see the debate about Jesus become increasingly polarized. So on the one side, you have the Pharisees and the Jews, the religious leaders. 
The leaders can't deny the convincing evidence. The formerly blind man is standing there right in front of their eyes. They can see him standing there and he can see them too. His eyes work. And in verse 14, it tells us that the healing happened on a Sabbath. And if you know anything about the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you know that they were sticklers on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for rest and for worship, not for work. And for them, healing someone must have taken work. It didn't seem like work for Jesus, like all he had to do was spit and make a little mud pie. But for them, apparently that was work. And so they don't like it. And even though Jesus has clearly healed the man, they say that he can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He doesn't keep the rules. And so they begin this series of interviews to try to discredit Jesus. First, they question the blind man. Then they call in his parents for questioning and they interrogate them. And and then when they still don't get the answers they want, they go back to the blind man and they grill him some more. And all along the way, the religious leaders become increasingly hostile to the formerly blind man and to Jesus. Like, look at verse 24. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man, that Jesus, that he's a sinner. Verse 28. And they reviled him. They revile the blind man. Verse 34 to the blind man again. You were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And then the kicker, at the very end of it all, they cast him out. They expel him from the community. They say, be gone. Now if you read this carefully, it's obvious that the leaders don't have a strong case. They know that Jesus healed the guy. The evidence is convincing. But they just don't like the truth that is right there in front of their eyes. They know that if Jesus is for real, there are massive implications for them and for everyone else. Like if Jesus really is the light of the world, that means that we really are in the dark. And that means that the only way out is to follow the light, to follow him. And the leaders, they like being the leaders. They like being the ones that people follow. They want to lead. They don't want to follow. They want to run the show, be the boss, have control. They don't want to have to follow Jesus but they don't have a strong case against him. So instead of making a cogent argument, instead they just yell louder and they call names. Like, you ever been in an argument like this? Where you know that your case is a losing case, but you can't stand it, and so instead of conceding that your position is weak sauce, you just get louder and louder and you yell more and more. You get more entrenched in your losing position. Just me? Am I the only one? All right. But the point is that the leaders don't have a good argument against Jesus. They don't want Jesus to be the light, so they refuse to see it. And this is so common in our day, too. You know, Jesus makes these astounding claims about himself. And in real life, just like in the story with the blind man, the evidence is convincing. We talked about this a few weeks ago in the Explore God series. But, but there is convincing evidence that authenticates Jesus' astounding claims. When you really investigate his life, death, and resurrection, there is way more evidence for it than there is against it. But some people just refuse to see it. In the next month or so, plenty of, plenty of those people will show up on the front page of magazines and all over the internet in the weeks leading up to Easter. All kinds of people will put forward all kinds of wacky arguments to try to explain Jesus away. Some of those people have PhDs and impressive titles. Others will be celebrities who think we should listen to them just because they're famous. They must be experts because of that. But but when you look at the arguments they put forward for why Jesus is not God, why he's not the light of the world, when you look at the actual arguments, most of them have a lot in common with what the leaders are doing in this story. They just shout louder. 
They say the same things over and over again. And their case boils down to, I don't want it to be true, so it can't be true. Because when you look at the evidence, it's convincing. As long as you're open to being convinced. You know, from a slightly different angle, I recently heard a great example of this kind of thing. Some of you may be familiar with Jordan Peterson. Uh, Peterson is a popular public intellectual. He's a Canadian clinical psychologist who teaches at the University of Toronto. And uh, Peterson's a really interesting dude. He's an atheist. He, He does not believe in God. He's not a Christian. But he's also generally very favorable toward the Bible and toward Christian belief. And in many ways, I appreciate what he has to say about a lot of different topics. But recently, I was listening to a debate between Peterson and a few other people where Jordan Peterson told this story about his perspective on Jesus. Like, Jordan Peterson has studied Jesus extensively. He knows a lot about Jesus, and he even respects and appreciates Jesus as a teacher. But in this debate, he tells this story about a dream that he had, a real dream that he had one night. And in this dream, he's, he's in a graveyard. He's in a, he's in a graveyard outside of an old cathedral. And he's standing in this graveyard, and he's looking at the tombs, and, and the headstones there, they're all for the great kings and warriors of the past. Like men like Constantine and Julius Caesar and Napoleon and Alexander the Great. These great kings and warriors of old. And he's he's looking at the headstones and and as he's standing there, all of a sudden, the men themselves start coming up out of the ground, out of the graves. And when they come up, they're dressed in full battle armor. And they start to notice each other. And as they notice each other, they they start to do what you would expect great warriors to do. They, They pull out their swords and they start trying to conquer one another. They start fighting. And going at each other. And Peterson's standing there watching this happen. And then all of a sudden, these warriors, in the midst of their fighting, they take their swords and they lay them down on the ground. And all of them, to a man, bows down on his knees before a figure at the other end of the graveyard. And Jordan Peterson looks in his dream. And he looks at who's at the other end of the graveyard. And it's none other than the person of Jesus Christ. In that moment, Peterson wakes up. And he starts thinking, what does this mean? What's the meaning of this dream? I'm a clinical psychologist. I've got to figure it out. What does this mean? Well, as I hear that dream, and I think as a lot of us hear that dream, I think what it means is pretty obvious. Like it's as obvious as the blind man who can now see. It's clear as the light of day. Jesus is the king of all kings, the one before whom all others must bow. That's what it means. But Jordan Peterson doesn't believe in Jesus. Not as a real historical figure who made the kind of claims and did the kind of things the Bible says he did. And so Jordan Peterson can't accept that obvious explanation. So instead what he does, he goes into clinical psychologist mode and he comes up with a clever solution. He says, you know, if if you take all of the most kingly qualities about all those other kings and you combine them into one person, you get the idea of Jesus. And that's why they all bow down to him in the dream. Now that's a clever solution. But in so many ways, he's doing exactly what the leaders in John 9 do. He's ignoring the obvious to find an explanation that fits the place where he started. Like, you don't believe in Jesus, and you don't want to believe in Jesus because it would mean you would have to bow down before him. So you can't accept the clear-as-day solution right in front of your eyes. And that's what so many people in our day do, too. 
They don't want Jesus to be God because of what it would entail for their lives. And so they start with the conclusion that Jesus can't be God. And then they find a rationale to back it up. It's like Jesus' light is so bright that it hurts their eyes. And so they pull some blackout curtains over the windows so they don't have to see it. They think they've got the light within themselves and they aren't really in the dark. They think that they can see, so they refuse to admit their blindness. Now, on the other side of this polarization, you have another character in the story. You have the formerly blind man. And this guy started his day as a blind beggar and he expected it to stay that way. He expected to finish his day as a blind beggar. But all of that changed when some dude he'd never met showed up and spit in the dirt. And at the time, he knew almost nothing about Jesus. Verse 11 tells us that all he knew was that the man called Jesus did some stuff that made him able to see. By verse 17, you see that he's moved a little farther along. Jesus, he says, is a prophet. By verse 30, he confidently says, Jesus opened my eyes. So it wasn't the mud, it wasn't the pool, it was Jesus who did it. And by verse 33, he's sure that Jesus came from God. He keeps moving closer and closer and closer to Jesus. And where the leaders pulled back the, pulled the blackout curtains over the windows to keep the light out, what the blind man does is he opens the shades so the light can stream into his life. See, the whole story reaches its climax in verse 35. Jesus has been absent from the stage since verse 7, but now he steps back onto the scene. He heard that the leaders cast out the blind man. They kicked him out of the synagogue and they expelled him from the community. So Jesus does what Jesus does. He goes and finds the man. The blind man at this point has still never seen Jesus. So Jesus knows he can't come find him. So Jesus goes after him instead. And when Jesus finds him, he asks him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Son of Man is a title for the Jewish Messiah that Jesus borrows from the book of Daniel. And Jesus is not asking, hey, blind man, do you believe that the Son of Man will come someday? What he's asking is, do you put your trust in him? Do you believe in the Son of Man personally? And look at the guy's answer in verse 36. He says, who is he, sir? That I might believe in him. He doesn't yet know who the Son of Man is. He's still learning. But he wants to know so that he can believe. He's ready. And so Jesus says to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. His answer is awesome. He says, You have seen him. This guy can see now. And what he sees right in front of his new eyes is the light of the world standing there and speaking with him. And the man in that moment does the only appropriate thing. He says, Lord, I believe. And he bows before him like those kings in Jordan Peterson's dream. And he worships Jesus. And as the scene closes out, the final verses of chapter 9 are where we finally see the point of this whole extended story that started back in chapter 7 come into focus. Jesus says in verse 39, For judgment I came into the world, 
that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. On the spiritual level, those who see are those like the leaders in the story who think they see, but in fact are actually blind. And the blind are those who who are lost in the darkness, but they know it. They know they can't see clearly. They know they're in the dark. And they know that they need the light to open their eyes. And the glorious good news here in the story is that Jesus says that he came so that the blind may see. He came to turn the lights on for those who know that they're in the dark. And so if that's you here today, know that what Jesus is offering you and me and the whole world is the light of life. He offers us the light that produces true life. The light that produces real life. The life that leads to eternal life. The life for which God created us. But to experience that life, to have the light of life, requires two things. The first thing it requires is that you see that you can't see. That you recognize your own blindness and you admit your own blindness. You see, Jesus is saying here that blindness is the prerequisite to sight. So if you're not a follower of Christ here today, what he's saying is that you are in the dark. And I know that that sounds harsh, but those are Jesus' words. They're not mine. Jesus is the light of the world. And so if you don't see him, you can't really see anything. And just so you know, so, so we're not discriminating here, It's not just you, it's all of us. The Bible makes it clear that all of us are born in the dark. We're born in that underground basketball arena in Mammoth Cave. We are spiritually blind from birth and Jesus came to turn the lights on for us. But until you admit your blindness, Jesus can't help you. And so if you're here today and you don't yet believe in Jesus... Don't be like the leaders in the story who pull the blackout curtains over the windows to avoid the light of Jesus. Instead, follow the example of the blind man and open the shades and let the light of Jesus shine in. Practically speaking, what that means is I'd really encourage you to seriously investigate Jesus. Talk with me or talk with a Christian friend. Read up on the evidence. Read the Gospel of John that we're looking at today. Listen to what Jesus himself has to say. It may all seem like mud on your face at first, but as you keep looking, keep going and see what happens. Look at the evidence with an open mind. Really consider it. Don't write it off because you don't want it to be true, because it would be inconvenient. But admit your blindness. Open the shades and start to look at Jesus. And then when you do, follow the light. Follow the light. When Kinsey and I were back in that cave in Kentucky, the only way out of the darkness and back to where life happens is to follow the light. And similarly, if you want to experience the life that Jesus offers, you have to follow the light of the world. The blind man in the story ultimately does what all of us must do if Jesus is who he claims to be. If Jesus really is God, if he really is the light of the world, then ultimately all of us must bow down before him, acknowledge him as Lord, and worship him with our whole lives by following the light. 
Jesus promised in John 8, 12, that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The reality is that there is darkness in the world around us, and there is darkness in each of our lives. From corruption in City Hall to shootings on the block, from betrayal by a friend to opposition by an enemy, from the strain of staying in a relationship to the pain of losing a relationship, from dealing with depression to being diagnosed with cancer, from lust that burns to integrity that fails. There is darkness in the world around us and there is darkness in each of our lives. And without light, the darkness will ultimately win. Without light, there can be no life. Not now, not forever. But Jesus promises that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He offers light. Light that leads you through whatever darkness you're facing right now. And light that leads you out of the darkness forever. Light that produces life. Light that may start as a flicker, but can quickly grow into a raging bonfire in your soul. Light that enables you to mature and flourish and become all that the God of light created you to be, now and forever. And so if you're here today and you're already a believer in Jesus, if Jesus is the Lord of your life, let this be an encouragement to you to keep following the light. He is the light of the world. And following him is really the only way to really live. And so keep following the light wherever he leads you. To a new step of faith. To a new job or a new ministry. To a new neighborhood or a new country. To love a new neighbor. To share your faith with a new coworker, To whatever new thing he's calling you to. Follow the light. Keep following the light wherever he leads you. And even right now, if it feels like you're deep underground in the midst of 400 miles of spaghetti noodle caves, even if the darkness in your life feels overwhelming right now, keep following the light. He will lead you safely home. He's the way out of the darkness. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ today, and you see today that you can't see, then let today be the day where you do as the blind man did 2,000 years ago. Bow down before Jesus. Call him Lord. Worship him with your life. And follow the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So follow the light. Let's pray. Father, we praise you today. We praise you that you sent the light of the world into the world. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are the light of life. That in your light we can see. In your light we can have life. God, I pray for those who are with us today who uh, do not yet have that light. I pray that they would open the curtains. They'd open the shades and they'd let the light stream in. Would you open their eyes that they would see they would see the glory and beauty of the light of the world, of Jesus himself. And God, I pray for those of us here today who are followers of, of you, who've been following Jesus for some time, for those who are in the darkness right now, who are feeling the weight of that darkness, I pray that you would uh, meet them in this moment. God, that you'd light up their hearts, that you'd give them encouragement, that you would lead them through the darkness and back into the light. And for all of us, God, would we be a people as a church who follow the light wherever you lead us, now and always, would you make us the light of the world for you here today? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.